I'm a veterinarian, sure, but I'm way more than that. I am also a tango dancer, a struggling but determined pie maker, and a mom. With IndieVets, I get to choose when and where I work. I create my own schedule and choose shifts at nearby animal hospitals that are right for me. Having that flexibility is exactly what I need to have plenty of time for all those other things that I am. Because I'm more than just a vet. Visit IndieVets.com to learn more and apply. Welcome back, everybody, to the IndieVets Happy Hour. I am your host, as usual, Dr. Andrew Heller, DVM. I have a co-host with me today that is not Marissa Brunetti, unfortunately. She's just so busy. That, that woman is just so busy. But anyway, I have a great replacement today, and this person goes by the name Dr. Miguel Ortiz. Hello, Andrew. Hello, all. Uh, happy to be here. <laughs> well, I'll just give everybody a little bit of background on Dr. Ortiz. So Miguel joined us in the Pittsburgh region back this past spring, and we call him one of our pioneers because he was the very first indie <laughs> vet in Pittsburgh. Um, he's a graduate of Purdue Vet School, and he has gone on to achieve a Master's of International Development and Public Policy from the University of Pittsburgh. So he and I were actually chatting a few months ago now, I think, about mm -hmm. this problem of access to care in the vet world. And I invited him to come on and just kind of school us a little bit on this problem. And mm -hmm. he's done a lot of research. He's attended, what, some conferences and some seminars on this topic. And I thought he'd had a lot to, to offer all of us in this field. So, mm. you know, we're sort of taking a little bit of break again from our new breed series. So we'll get back to that soon. Stay tuned. I think we're going to do Cavalier King Charles next. So mm. stay tuned for that. It's going to be a really nice one. So anyway, so today, you know, Miguel, we were just talking about the goal of, mm -hmm. of this podcast episode. And you and I agreed. We really just want to let everybody in this industry know that this problem exists. So for some of you, you may not know about this, this issue. So we'll define that today. And then I think Miguel is going to tell us and show us what kind of work is being done right now to find solutions and how we can all together in this vet industry implement some of those solutions and, and achieve some real strides. Mm -hmm. Let's start off, Miguel. I mean, I don't know much about this. I know there's this issue. I feel this issue of access to care. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what this term means, you know, what, this, what the major problem is here that we're, that we're going to discuss today? Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for the <laughs> kind introduction. And uh, it's been, been wonderful being an indie vet for the last six months or so. But this idea, this notion, the last six months of my work have kind of surrounded this idea of access to care. Most of us have heard about it and, and we feel it. Like you said, we, we do, we feel it. But what does it really mean? And there's a lot of, lot of really good work. AVMA has a lot of really good publications. Um, there's a famous access to care coalition paper from Dr. Michael Blackwell that's out there. And, and we can certainly share references with, with individuals that they want to follow up with it. You know, what we can do is we can uh, put in the show notes some of these references. So, yeah. so I can I can basically just copy and paste them in. For sure, for sure. But, um, you know, just to put a, put a number on it, um, we know that in, in our country, there's roughly around 20 million animals, 20 million pets that are living in poverty. Wow. You know, these are going to be animals that rarely get to see a veterinarian, rarely get to have spay and neuter services, rarely get to have vaccine services or, you know, any sort of interventive services that they may need throughout their life. 
you know, that, that's a lot, <laughs> you know, just sit, let's just sit with that for a minute and realize that that is, that is a lot. And, and we, we are in a profession where we're called to serve and called to help and to realize that there's 20 million lives out there that we don't have access to. They don't have access to us. Um, that, that's a stellar problem. Another way of thinking about it is that, you know, in the United States, 40% of our population, you know, across the board don't have access to, to resources. They don't have access to, for example, $400 on an on a as-needed basis, right? Not, they just don't have it in the savings account to, to need it if, you know, their, their cat becomes blocked. You know, a dog tears an ACL, swallows a toy or whatever it might be. You know, those funds are just not there. And unfortunately, a lot of those those individuals are probably going to also not have access to to crediting services yeah. that can help save or to step in and, and work on that. So that's a, a large picture magnitude of the financial, the, the economic side of things. Right. And then we can layer on top of that the geography, the culture the language, you know, the, the multicultural racial dynamics that that lead individuals to not have access to us as, as a profession. Maybe we don't speak the language that you speak. Maybe we don't, uh, we're not located in your community. Right. Maybe we, we, you know, we're not representative of your identity, of, of a client's identity. Yeah, and I've, I've seen that firsthand. There are practices I've been to that serve a specific community of people. Like I remember there's one, uh, I'm in Philly, and there's this one area where there are a lot of Russian-speaking people. And there's this one vet that I worked with that she sees like everybody in the community that only speaks Russian because she could speak Russian. Uh, language barrier is is huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A lot, a lot has been talked about the racial disparity of our profession, right? We're 95% white or, or whatever the number gets put out there. And I, can, I think a lot of fingers get pointed to that when it comes to access to care. And there's a lot that can be unpacked there as to why that is and, and, and what trends are going on there. But when we're thinking about it from a point of analysis of just access to care, you know, all the different things that we talked about, the geography, the language, the culture, the economics, these are all reflections of, of something bigger than veterinary medicine. They're reflections of our society in general, inequities in general, and that's okay. You know, I, I, I try to not to get too bogged down on the, the status quo of where we are, but more so where are we going? Where are we going to go now how are we going to get things to be better for our, our patients and for our clients and for ourselves? Yeah. And this parallels a little bit of, of the human side as well, correct? I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, my time at University of Pittsburgh was in, in public policy. In my public policy work, I spent, you know, learning about the world of um, health inequities in, in, in across the country. Mm -hmm. Communities that live next to highways are going to have significantly higher rates of asthma. Yeah. Communities that live next to a coal plant's ash pile are significantly higher rates of cancer. Yeah. Communities of color here in Pittsburgh, there's a very uh, a detailed study about the health inequities that go from uh, African-American mothers here in the pillar of, of, of health, <laughs> in the shadow of, yeah. of, of, of a, a world-renowned medical center we're still having those problems. And, and, and why do they exist? Why are they so pervasive? It's important questions. 
you had written down um, here something to do with gender. Yeah, yeah, gender, gender. Well, you know, um, our profession once was male dominated, right? And that's changing. Another thing to think about is there that just as much as someone from a different culture may not feel comfortable coming to a veterinarian because they don't identify with them, maybe someone with a, a gender identity may not feel accepted in, in, in our practices, you know, gendered bathrooms, for example, or, or you know, it's, it's probably not a numbers-wise common issue, but I think it's a growing issue and something that we need to recognize. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned diet. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? So we look at access to food. Uh, and food security uh, and food deserts on the human side. You know, we, 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 we understand this concept. You know, we can't have access to fresh food. Dog food and cat food diets are, I think, can parallel that are increasingly inaccessible to a lot of the folks who can't afford vet care. Yesterday, I was asked to recommend a food and I recommended a common brand. It was $70 for a bag. Yeah. Probably not accessible to a lot of folks. And so there then, what do they do? They go and they buy dog food for wherever they can afford it, whether that's a low cost or budget grocery store or have access to, to treats that are probably not terribly nutritious. You know, and so if, you, if you're in a position where you don't have access to, just like on the human side, if you don't have access to fresh food and you don't have access to those resources, you may have higher incidence of diabetes. You may have higher incidence of high blood pressure. You might have malnutrition mm-hmm. and same thing i think applies to the veterinary world if we believe in the science of our diets and if we believe in the science of, of good nutrition and we know that our pet populations don't have access to good nutrition but have access to poor nutrition we should expect the same parallels of poor health outcomes which increasingly require more veterinary care, except we don't have a safety net of public health so that it's all going to be consumer-based, meaning that if, a, if an owner who doesn't have a lot of money must then feed their dog poor diets and that dog has poor health outcomes, they're going to be caught in this cycle of then needing to have more vet care, and it just goes round and round. Yeah. Do we regulate it? Do we institute universal care? You know, or or do we establish healthcare for pets as a right? That's a long way off, and that's, yeah. a, that's a heavy thing to unpack. But if nothing else, we can have a discussion of if our clients and our pets don't have access to wholesome food, we should expect to have problems that 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 need to be addressed as well. Yeah, when when we first were talking about access to care, my first thought was vet shortages as mm-hmm. well. And then from vet shortages, I also thought to myself, you know, standards of care have risen, which made, you know, obviously we were talking a little bit about costs before go up as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're talking about vet shortages and then you're talking about, you know, gold standard treatments and things like that that are just getting more and more expensive. Does that factor into to this discussion? Yeah, it absolutely does. I think we can do look at it from a couple of ways. First of all, you know, gold standards are great. Our, our medicine is so advanced and so sophisticated and we're doing such amazing things. Miracles of modern medicine, for sure. Right. But uh, sometimes we get stuck with, if we can't practice the quote-unquote gold standard, we're doing something wrong. And that's the pitfall that I think we need to be cautious about. 
you know, medical standards require us to do what a reasonable veterinarian would do in our place. Meaning that, you know, the gold standard is there. We can aim for that. But if we are put in situations where we have to practice outside of that, as long as we're being reasonable, as long as we're following medical common sense or, 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 or um, general accepted practices, then th- it's kind of okay to do that. And the other point of that, the other side of that coin is, are we teaching our students to be able to practice outside of these things? You know, we're, we're, you know there's a lot of talk out there right now about the, the, the current education of our, our future veterinarians Super good, so high end, so so specialized. But can we can we step into those places that need veterinarians, like you know less less representative communities that don't have access to a to a veterinarian, right? Shortages of veterinarians. Oh, oh there's really good work being done out of um, out of Banfield. Dr. Courtney Campbell and and his his team they've done an amazing job looking at veterinary deserts and actually yeah. defining them and mapping them. And it, it makes sense that practices are that those places where we're not going to have practices in, in, in when we're when we're educating the, the future veterinarians, if we're not teaching them to be able to practice in a way that can intersect with the places that don't have access to care, don't have to, access to all the finances, then we're going to be increasing this gap as opposed to closing it. You know, one thing I think about is um, the increasing costs of going to vet school. Yeah. I know for my own, from my own experience, my vet school loans are, you know, astronomical. Mm-hmm. And that just means that when I go get a job, I need to make sure that I am being paid in a way that I can pay those back. Mm-hmm. And so that in turn trickles down to where I'm going to practice and where I can make enough money to support that. So, you know, if I owe two, $300,000 for student loans, am I gonna go take a job in a poor community in the middle of nowhere where there's a, you know, there's a vet desert, I'll never be able to pay back my loan. So it's a little bit of a, you know, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. The system is set up to cause these inequities and to cause these access to care issues. And until we address the underlying causes, which which is something that I just said, I don't know if we're going to be able to solve it, right? The cost of education is driving the cost of care. For sure, for sure, for sure. There's, um, it reminds me of another, another JAVMA article on the multi-model, uh, multi-economic model of the profession, right? On one side, you know, in the middle is the supply and demand and cost of care. How much does it cost for a you know, regular person to take their dog to the veterinarian? And on one side is how much does it, the cost that they incur to attain that pent? Yep. And on the other side, how much it costs us to go to school and then the market for our, our, our employment. And those, all those forces trickle down to the cost of a rabies vaccine and the cost of a, of a veterinary appointment. So there's, yeah, you're right. There's all these upstream parameters. One thing that I like to think about and, and, and potential looking at the future is the work that's being done in the food animal industry and the public veterinary services. You know, there's there's deserts there and they've been recognized for many years. And there's a lot of federal funded programs for loan repayment that can help with that. Yeah. You know, we're not I, we don't see that in the in the, met, you know, deep metropolitan areas. We don't see that in our 
you know, rural areas where we don't have access to care. But that would be a really neat and really interesting way to move forward, recognizing that access to veterinary care is as important to the general and national well-being as as food animal practices and uh, public services. Yeah. Not to take down from the importance that they have, but you know, there's 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 something to, to be done there. You, you know, you mentioned uh, when we were talking about the goal of this pod that. There are solutions being presented. There are people working on answers here that we can all get involved in. So, mm-hmm. what are some of the solutions? How can we how can we begin to address the access to care issue? Three, I think, three things that come to mind are new business models. Mm-hmm. Number one, so looking at it from a different from different perspectives. Number two, a lot of social work, social science work being done in collaboration with veterinarians on how do we effectively engage with communities that are underserved? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really good work being done there. And then the third is, I guess I'm going to call it self-work, which is the the notion that we need to understand how this impacts us and the, and the impact that we have on this problem in general. You know, you mentioned that there are some nonprofits or some some businesses that have that have addressed this. I know here in Philly there's something called Emancipet. Have you heard of Emancipet? Totally, yeah. I think they are actually national, right? They're they're in Texas and in a bunch of different states. And IndieVets has actually been a partner of theirs for almost since the beginning when we started. They've been a great partner to us. And I know that they offer extremely reduced pricing for even surgeries like spays and neuters. I mean, I think they have like a flat rate of like 60 to 70 bucks for any spay or any neuter, um, which is hundreds of dollars cheaper than what you can typically get at a, at a full service vet practice. Their vaccines, I believe are like $5 each, but you have to live within a certain zip code in order to get those services. Or if you live within certain zip codes, I think everything's free. Yeah, yeah. I learned about Emancipat at the recent ASPCA Access to Care Conference out of the University of Minnesota. And, you know, their work is is phenomenal, you know, just, yeah. just hearing what they do and, and, and how they're really elevating. They're not just doing it cheap, they're doing it correctly. And that right. I think that was the, what stuck out to me that like, yeah, they're, they're helping folks with, with cost. But they're not doing it by cutting corners. They're doing it by being smart. And, and I think that was just awesome to, to learn about. Now, I can say firsthand, I've done some shifts there. And no, they really do a good job. I mean, their surgeons are top notch, um, do a great job. And honestly, <laughs> I sometimes tell people that I know, I say, hey, if you want a good surgeon who does 20 or 30 of these, 30 of these every day with good protocols and you want it cheap, Go to Manspet. You know, it's not going to be bells and whistles. They're not going to keep your dog for hours afterwards and monitor and all that kind of stuff. But um, mm-hmm. in terms of, of quality of, of surgery, you're going to get a, good, a really good, uh, good outcome there. They don't represent, you know, the full service model. So if, if they see an issue, they'll actually refer them to another service, another uh, full service vet practice. They don't ignore it, which I like. You know, and also, you know, I'm going to say liberating um, the concept of spectrum of care. Um, you know, there's a lot of stigma to that. Um, spectrum of care. Yes. Spectrum of care being, you know, there's a gold standard that for whatever factors we can't practice inside that gold standard right now, there's a spectrum. There's 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 choices that I can make. 
that we're hesitant. We were worried about litigation. We worry about um, professional ridicule, for lack of a better term. Not that we ridicule each other, but we don't want to be, yeah. you know, stigmatized by ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, um, Nationwide Insurance, you brought them up. They're doing fantastic work on on providing evidence based behind these spectrums of care. You know, um, they have an awesome pancreatitis uh, study. They have a really cool um, uh, ACL injury uh, study. There's the their Colorado State, I believe, um, parvovirus protocol, um, which really you know led the way in this uh, many years ago. Yeah. And so, so re- inside the private industry, because we're a private industry, giving voice to the spectrum that where we can practice, I think, is important. And going back to my comments on the future of education, teaching within the spectrum of care, I think, is also important, so that you know, future veterinarians can continue to be problem solvers when yeah. that not everything's available. Not everyone has an ultrasound. Not everybody has tono, you know, those type of things. And you, you come from a, a shelter background too. I know you did some work in the shelter previously, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So what are, what are the shelters doing to address this issue? Obviously they rely more heavily on government budgeting, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I was at a individual nonprofit, so not a federally funded shelter. Okay. So a little bit of just a little bit of a distinction there, but there's a lot of really good work being done out of shelters. I think animal shelters and nonprofit organizations are playing a very important role in improving the access to care. These organizations are kind of like the listening tools for the veterinary profession. They're on the forefront of collaborating with and receiving feedback from the individuals that need the help, um, which I think is really important. They're really listening to the individuals uh, that are affected by this problem. The other important role that these institutions play is is outreach and education. Oftentimes their mission drives them to go outside their their exam rooms, outside the building, and, uh, and get to the root cause of the problems. They're involved in disseminating disease prevention information, they're, they're a source of resources uh, and oftentimes a safety net for folks that need it. And then lastly, they're really leading the way in, uh, in research and innovation, which is going to be critical to, to test the solutions and to, to involve communities and individuals um, in finding the solution to the problem. Great. But, uh, but one thing that, that we can add that, that, that I certainly think is important to, to to talk about is the the nine principles of community engagement and the quality of care, which came from Emancipat. Oh yeah, so they're the nine principles of community engagement. So Dr. Elizabeth Berliner at the ESP, ASPCA, and then several researchers out of Tufts, the University of Pennsylvania, you know, just just down the road from you, and a few others are working on a a guiding document for nine principles that all veterinarians, shelters, nonprofit organizations all should consider when engaging with communities that, uh, that lack access to care. And, and the, the, this work is based out of a, a, do, a, a similar guide, guidelines for the CDC when addressing communities in public health. So sort of elevating the veterinary profession to say, look, you know, if you if you know that there's a community that doesn't have access to care, you can't just walk in there and try to save today. Mm-hmm. You know, there's 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 a lot to be considered before you before you try to do this type of work. 
and they're working on that on those principles. What are some of those principles? You don't have to list all nine. Any good ones? Yeah, I think the first one is you know becoming knowledgeable, understanding the community, understanding the leaders in that community, understanding what the community wants. So sort of deep listening and understanding of what they need and what they what they want, respecting the diversity in that in those communities, not coming from a a, a savior mentality, but from a partner mentality, mm-hmm. committing to a long-term commitment as well. When we're when working with, with communities that have difficult or, or individuals that have access to, to care issues, fixing one thing once is, is great. But if we disappear and we stop a program or, or, we, or we, we take that away, then we may be even worse off. So, so being, being committed to this type of work um, is really important too. Oh, that's that's very important. So let's see. That was you know we talked about the the new models, the the new work being done there. Talking about how to engage communities and how to do it in a in a conscious way, in a deep listening way. And I think the other thing that that is important is for veterinarians and veterinary staff and, and veterinary uh, technicians to recognize that this is hard, and, and and we have to take care of our patients, but we have to take care of ourselves too. You know, my own journey with professional burnout, with with emotional self-awareness, mm-hmm. I think I was very, very informed by by this problem and, and by the practices that I've been at. You know, it uh, you never know when it's going to walk in the door. You, you go to work every day and we love our jobs and we love what we do. You know, there's stresses for sure, but, you know, we don't know what, it, what it's what access to care. We don't know what, what it's going to look like. We don't know when someone's not going to be able to afford something. We don't know what, what's going to be wrong with the pet. We're, we're going to be, we can't schedule it. (laughs) I can't schedule it in my, in my day. Oh, you know, between the hours of two and three, when I've had my lunch and I'm kind of rested and I've got my afternoon coffee, I'm going to be chipper and ready to do this, right? It's going to show up at 845 in the morning, or it's going to show up at 450 in the afternoon when I'm not ready for it. And and that's hard and that's tough. Um, and And it may derail your whole day. Absolutely. As part of being a vet, unfortunately, you know, and that definitely contributes to the burnout you're, you're mentioning. So, you know, we promised in our goal that we would tell people what they could do to get involved in this or to at least incorporate some of these, you know, some of this stuff into their daily practice. Where could somebody start? Certainly, you know, being, you know, what can we do? You know, how do, how do we get to this? <laughs> how do we solve this problem? Yeah. You know, for an individual veterinarian, which I think is a good unit of analysis, a good way to look at it, mm-hmm. individual veterinarian or individual technician or an individual hospital manager, you know, down to the individual level, what can we do? Uh, that's where I think where it can be most impactful for us and for our clients. Certainly being informed is number one, right? We'll, we'll share resources and things to read and you know things to explore. And, and even just doing that, I think, can give us a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So certainly that's, that's number one. Second, I think, is, is the recognition that this is hard for, for the staff, for the veterinarians, for the technicians, for the receptionists, and also for the owners. There's a lot of trauma that comes with this. It, it's hard to be in a room with a with a with a dog in it with a gaping wound and not being able to do anything about it, right? Being in that place and saying, "Well, yeah, I can fix it, but you have to have all this money, but you don't have this money, so 
either I fix it and, and I have to deal with the ramifications from the boss or I don't fix it. And oh my gosh, what do I do? <laughs> you know, it's traumatic. And, and it has nothing to do with an individual not being smart enough or, 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 or creative enough. And, and recognizing that it's, it's hard, I think is also really important. Well, we would have, in some of the practices I've been in, we've, we've had funds that we would augment from time to time um, or people would donate. And that way, when we did come across a patient that really did need, you know, certain care that wasn't necessarily going to be lifelong, mm-hmm. we would we would be able to fund those types of things. So, you know, maybe veterinarians listening to this can can start a fund that allows, you know, people who, who don't have the money to to get care for their pets. Yeah, I think that's that's super smart. And I think, um, you know, you could even get wrapped up into your benefits package. You know, as as each veterinarian gets benefits, we can we can maybe start negotiating for five hundred, a thousand bucks in my benefits package as part of my contribution to my community, right? I like that. That's like yeah, it's like a pro bono fund. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's you know, we can certainly learn lessons from from different professions and how they manage this and then and how they provide for for their for their professionals. I mean, wouldn't we feel great if I knew I had a thousand dollar bucket that I get to like, you know, disseminate, no questions asked. You know, yep. But I mean, obviously, you know, we don't want to be the gatekeepers to this either, right? We don't want to make it a personal decision. We want to help whoever no, no matter what. Yeah, but it's it's really relevant for us as indie vets. You know, we're not we don't own a practice. Yeah. We are not associates at one particular practice. So we can't justify giving away free stuff. Right. Right. But as as indie vets, if we had a fund, I mean, kind of like the share the love fund, yeah, where we can make some decisions and say, hey, you know, this is a worthwhile case mm-hmm. to spend a little bit of my fund on, you know, to spend a little bit of my share the love, I would call it. Yeah. You know, potentially we could do that. I think I think that would be a great place to start for us as indie vets. And thank you for that idea, because I sure think, I think we yeah. should go back to uh, to the higher ups and talk about that for sure. You know, if we can do that as a company. Uh, maybe other companies will will follow suit and do the same. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And, and the last bit to add, um, I think it's important to be able for us veterinarians and even our teams to be able to communicate clearly with owners about the risks that they're facing if they can't afford X, Y, Z. You know, if they can't do a diagnostic, if they can't do an X-ray today, if we can't, you know, afford this this treatment or this medication okay what does that look like then what is what is the what are the the risks that we're taking what are the contingencies that we can make to mitigate those risks communicating that well documenting that well in our medical record is important because that makes us feel better it's scary to say no you don't need that x-ray and then taking upon that yeah. sort of decision upon ourselves to say Oh my God, I'm going to stay up all night because we all have. Yeah. <laughs> Does Fluffy really have an obstruction or not? Right. Yeah. You know, that's scary. And so we say, no, 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 sorry. You got to take that x-ray. I don't care because I need to sleep at night. Well, if we, if we, if we, we change that paradigm, if we change that, that, that conversation to, to a risk assessment communication, to a documented communication within the context of what can I do? What do I, a clinician, feel comfortable doing? What does my what is my hospital capable of absorbing? And what is the owner's 
uh, literacy, health literacy, and, and, and capacities to provide outside the norm care, outside the, the gold standard care, working and practicing that interaction and communication, I think is really important to be able to handle these type of cases and, 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 and really make a dent at this problem. Yeah, I think that's all really great advice. Well, I think that about sums up this conversation. So thank you so much, Miguel, for, for being here with me and taking Marissa's spot at the seat <laughs> for the conversation. But um, yeah, thank you so much. I, I learned a lot. I think I'm more aware now of the issue mm. and hopefully everybody listening to this is as well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Andrew. Thank you, uh, Marissa, for, uh, you know, she's be, she's here in spirit. I can feel it. Um, so Absol- absolutely. Thank you for uh, <laughs> thank you for offering this platform to be able to share this uh, with everybody. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll send links and, you know, we'll keep up, keep up the good work. Absolutely. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode on the Indie Vets Happy Hour. Thank you for listening. Tell your friends, whether they're vets, techs, just the general public. And if you guys like us, leave us a five-star review and make sure to subscribe so you can be alerted whenever we have a new episode. If you have questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at clinical at indievets.com. And also to learn more about us and how we're making vet med better, head to indievets.com. That's I-N-D-E-V-E-T-S.com. While you're there, be sure to head to our blog for the latest stories and tips from our doctors. Cheers. Cheers, y'all.